Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I would like to tell you a story. Knife Talk is sponsored by Evenheat, the manufacturers of the finest knife treat ovens available. Find your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com. Welcome to a very strange knife talk. This is going to be the strangest so far, but that's fine. I'm Jeff Fader of Fader Knives. Normally, I'm with Mareko Momasi of Momasi Fire Arts and Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives. But today, it's me and the, the fucking greatest of all time, my good buddy, Jared Thatcher of Boot Hill Blades. The goat, baby. The goat. All right. <laughs> so here, I'm just going to set everybody up. We started this podcast with Marek. Well, first things first is Craig is on his way to the hospital with his wife. His wife is, is due for twins soon, and they, he couldn't make the podcast. So Mareko and I said, let's call up our buddy Jared Thatcher of Boot Hill Blades. He's an awesome knife maker. He's a smart guy, and we're going to get him in. So we did another 30 minutes already, and something happened. Well, number one... My buddy Jared doesn't have a good internet at his farm, so he went to a very quiet Starbucks. But you know how they are at Starbucks. Those people behind the, the desk ain't that quiet. And then Mareko's Skype crapped out. So what we decided to do is Jared, to paint the picture, Jared is sitting in his truck like a, like a soldier. And we're going to – it's going to be me and him, and we're going to do knife talk. We're going to freaking do it. Well, just to give a little bit of a background um, – I am a huge fan of Jared Thatcher, and I'm sure most of the people on this podcast are fans of Jared Thatcher because Boot Hill Blades is one of the, the best chef knife guys in the Northeast as far as I'm concerned. But really what it comes down to is Jared is an incredible business person, and I just, you know, we're going to, we're going to, I want to know about Jared Thatcher. So what, what is it, what gets, what's, how did you start in on this, Jared? So, uh, we started the company in 2013, and that fall of 2013, I, I killed a deer out in this place called Woodlawn, Tennessee, out, out near Clarksville, and uh, and my wife and I decided to process this entire deer um, by ourselves. So we, we processed this freaking deer in our bathtub, and we had small oh. children, by the way, at the time, so this is even grosser. Um, but we, we processed the whole thing ourselves in the bathtub. And basically, um, I went through four or five different knives, you know, trying to, trying to process this deer and, uh, decided after we were done it, uh, six hours later or whatever it was that, okay, that's it. Like I'm going to buy a custom, beautiful hunting knife. So, I started scrounging around online, looking at different things, Instagram a little bit, trying to find a good chef knife. I mean, a good uh, hunting knife, and and you know, a good. You're you're looking at with a sheath, 
four or five hundred bucks probably for a well-known yeah. name, a good hunting knife, four or five hundred bucks. Uh, so I was like, my wife will kill me if I spend that kind of money on a knife where, uh, I'll, you know, probably never get a deer again. And on that note, I have not gotten a deer since 2013. I've been skunked every year since. Clearly that's something's (laughs) telling you something. Yes. And, uh, and so I, I, uh, I said, okay, I'm going to make a knife. I'm just going to make one. So I started watching hours of YouTube videos, hours of reading, uh, different websites and blade forms and things and, uh, every night. And so after about maybe two months worth of research, looking around, gathering a couple little tools here and there, I converted my Weber grill, just your regular average $30 Weber into a forge by basically jamming like a one inch pipe into the hole on the bottom of the ash tray catcher thing and then taping sure. duct taping a uh um hair dryer onto the end of that pole to give it some heat and using regular charcoal and i actually melted the first three knives in there i had no clue regular charcoal that you would grill with could get that hot i melted. wow i'm surprised myself i melted the first three knives i put them in there went to grab a drink or whatever came back pulled out handles and the rest was melted gone wow so, but what did you use as an anvil? Um, I bought that little, what is it, like a five-pound anvil from Harbor Freight, those little goofy blue ones. Oh, yeah. You know those little things or whatever? Sure, sure, sure. Those little jeweler's anvils. Yes, those little jeweler's ones that, you know, um, like I, I, I've got mild steel that's actually harder than those anvils. Yes. They're terrible, but I bought one of those for 20 bucks or whatever they were. And used that and a little little tiny um, uh, ball peen hammer that's got to weigh two ounces. <laughs> oh my god, that yeah. must have been hysterical. Oh gosh, I'm sure. And you know, bending down on one knee because I didn't have it on a stand, even the little anvil or anything. I'm just down on the deck, you know. <laughs> there's got to be a picture. <laughs> there's got somewhere. There's got to be a picture of that. Where that might be no the, that might be the that might be the wor- the the hardest way to forge anything I've ever heard of. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think you're right. It was terrible. So did you did you did you decide to forge before you started doing stock removal or Yeah, I forged first because I everything that I read was just about forging and so I figured I'd try I'd I'd do that first to convert that file. I still have so I bur- I melted the first 3, but I still have number 4 or the official like quote unquote first knife and it looks like a giant banana, you know, because I didn't know how to forge. And um Oh yeah, you know why it looked like a banana because you didn't realize that when you forge down that bevel, all that material is going to make it spine up. All right, well there you go. That's, right, that's perfect. Had no clue, and there's cracks all along the spine of this banana. Like it's terrible. Um, but I decided to try that and do that first. So I made probably, I don't know, I probably forged, quote unquote, forged um, three knives, and then started stock removal because I saw. I, when we talked on your Instagram live, I couldn't remember this company's name, but I remember now Anza knives, A-N-Z-A, Anza knives. I think they're in California. It's like all stock removal out of files. And I saw them and just a bright light shined down on me. And I was like, oh, I can actually just stock removal these. And I went and bought a one by 30 grinder 
and started building knives for people for Christmas, you know, friends and family and, you know, selling them for like 25 bucks a piece or whatever at the time. And, and, you know, you weren't, what did you do before you, what was your business? What business were you in before you were making knives? Yeah. Well, uh, I, since 2000, uh, let me see, since 2008, I was a financial advisor. Um, at one point I'm from Phoenix, Arizona originally. And at one point I was the youngest financial advisor, uh, in the country that was working for the company I was working for. And, um, so I was a financial advisor since 2008 until, uh, 2000, let's see, when did I leave? 2015 or 2016. Um, and I managed stocks and bonds and mutual funds and, and traded that and life insurance and all that. So when I left, I was managing somewhere around 84, $85 million in client assets. Um, which is crazy because, um, I actually had, you ever heard of, um, you ever heard of something called golden handcuffs? Yes. So yes. I, I had, a, yes. I had a three-year contract with my employer I left after two years because at some point, uh, like my father told me, uh, sometimes you just got to step off the ledge, Jared. Sometimes you just have to go for it if you want to, um, if you want to try something and if you want to see if it's going to stick. So I left after two years and actually had to pay my former employer back a significant chunk of a bonus that I had gotten. And, um, so my wife and I, we sat down and basically what you do is you wait for this employer to file basically a lawsuit, arbitration against you. Yeah, because you got to wait to see what they're asking for. So they they tried to come after me for, um, I, I think it was 60000 50 or 60000 Oh, my God. And, oh, I mean, it's, right. it's in the contract. You know what I mean? Like, it's not – I knew right. it was happening, so it's not a problem. But um, we worked it down, and I ended up writing a check for about $30,000 for me to walk away from uh. the bank to become a knife maker. And when I tell people oh that – Oh, my – Yeah, people are like, what the heck? You're insane. And, and you know what? I was working – Banker's hours, so, you know, 8 to 4, 8 to 5 at the bank, but then coming home, kissing the wife and kids, and then going straight down to this garage, to the shop, and work until 10, 10.30 at night. And and at this point, you don't still have the uh, you don't still have the Harbor Freight Anvil on the two ounce. That the, you're not putting all your putting all your eggs into that Harbor Freight Anvil on the ball peen hammer, right? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that, all that right, So you that's long gone by then. Uh, you've yeah. So by this time, you've already you're like pulled it together, and you're you know you had like a plan for your wife. Don't worry, we just cut this quick check for thirty thousand dollars. No problem. Right. So what we did, what I did was, um, I. And I know we talked about this on the little previous one, but um, I contacted a guy named um, Quentin Middleton. Middleton made knives, South Carolina, Best. Charleston. Just uh, like forget about knives for a second. Quentin is the quintessential Southern guy, Southern gentleman, whatever. He is the nicest, most funny, entertaining guy. I spent a whole day at Blade Show with him one time. And I just, my stomach hurt from laughing so much. I love him. So somehow Quentin 
convinced Kickstarter, maybe in 2014, 2015, he convinced Kickstarter that knives, chef knives specifically, were not weapons. And he convinced them to let him run a Kickstarter. He fulfilled that Kickstarter at like 30 grand or 35 grand. Amazing. Something crazy. I think he was the first one. So I called him and I said, hey, how, teach me how to do a Kickstarter. So he told me everything he could. I tried to get a guy to come out and film a video for our Kickstarter. It was going to cost. Now, had you already had you already settled with your former employer by the time you calling up Clinton? No, this is okay. Uh, so this is before before the, the Kickstarter started. Okay, now it makes sense. Yeah, okay, go ahead. yeah. So this was like a uh, former employer I left around 2016, I think, and okay. this was in like 2014, middle 2014. Right. Um, had to get some new equipment. Had to get off that freaking one by thirty. You know. Right. Yeah, Shit's tough. I know. Uh, I know. So I launched a Kickstarter and went to get a video done, and it's like, you know, a grand, two grand for somebody to come and shoot a video for your Kickstarter, which is worth it, by the way. But for me, I didn't have that kind of money, so I shot our entire Kickstarter video on my iPhone six, I think, at the time, or five C, whatever it was put it all together using iMovie and we launched that Kickstarter and it filled at 250% to goal, which wasn't much is like 7,500 bucks or whatever. But that allowed me to buy my two by 72, my anvil, my forge, my heat treat oven, all of those things. Dang. Yeah. So, um, that's where, it all sort of started and took off. So I got all of that middle of my freaking Kickstarter. Amazing. Middle of my freaking Kickstarter. I get a Uh-oh. cease and desist letter from a company called Queen Cutlery because my old, what? my old, my, <laughs> my free, my old company name used to be Queen City Knives and they had the trademark on Queen City Knives, but I didn't know that. So their lawyer hits me with this letter and then is like, please call. I call him like shaking in my boots. Please don't, you know, ruin me. Yeah. And he's like, how many knives are out there with our name that we own on it? Because every time oh you every time you Google Queen City, your Kickstarter oh. comes up. Oh my god. So I'm I'm like how many did you have out? 27. <laughs> so I had 27 knives, right? The guy starts laughing at me on the phone. He's laughing. And I'm like, uh, sir, uh, is everything like okay? Like, you know, is that... And he's dying laughing and he says to me, Jared, I thought you... I, I thought you were... They didn't tell me who you were or what you were doing. And he said, do you think you can stop using the Queen City name within about six months? And I was like, if you don't sue me, I can stop using that freaking name tomorrow. Like, no problem. <laughs> and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. He said, I'm going to put my entire um, marketing team at your disposal for the next month. They will help you come up with a new name, a new logo. They will help you put that out there. Um, we'll figure out what to do. And I said, what do I do for these Kickstarter knives? I've got to make 30 of them for these people that supported me. And he said, if I were you, Jared, I would put your old queen city knives logo on one side and put your new boot Hill blades logo on the other. And these 30 knives will be the only ones that are dual branded. Basically you got so lucky 
It's insane. I I think those guys are up by you too, Queen Cutlery. They're up in Pennsylvania or somewhere up there in in the Northeast. And I'm staying the fuck away from them. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm terrified. Yeah. I don't. I, Me too. You know, but uh, yeah, I got so lucky. That's unbelievable. So they did exactly what they said. They helped me rebrand. They put their um, uh, their team at my disposal. I ran a bunch of names past them. They helped me convert everything, um, and and that's how and when we became Boot Hill Blades instead of Queen City Knives. But yeah, that Kickstarter uh, was a real. I almost had that heart attack then. You know, that's I'm having a heart attack now. That's incredible because you don't normally think that uh, uh, the lawyer is gonna lawyer is gonna be gonna give you that opportunity. That's incredible. Yeah, I got really. Really freaking lucky. You kind of got hit by light. You got hit by lightning twice because a lot of times people do these Kickstarters and they don't do a very good job and they think that they're going to be able to raise the funds that they're expecting and it doesn't happen. So that's incredible. Yeah. Well, it just seems it's just well, just to head back real quick is one thing about Quentin Middleton and we've talked about this before, but Quentin Middleton really is one of the smartest business people in the knife making business what he's done is he's been able to kind of take the knife making but also see that as as a, instead of just seeing it as what a lot of these guys think of it as an art there he's creating it as a business and I, I i i've always looked up to you and i've looked up to quentin in terms of how you get to the point where you're not just making knives out of your uh out of your garage you're actually creating a business with a business plan and that's 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 incredible so so who came up with boot hill blades uh, my wife did actually. There's a little uh, hill in Clarksville that they call Boot Hill because Acme freaking Boot Company. Like, if you've ever guessed that there was a company called Acme Boot Company, there was, and it is now owned by uh, uh, oh gosh, what's his name, the Oracle of Omaha, um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Is ah. now owns this. It was one of those things that he bought, purchased. But anyway, there was a giant boot at the top of this hill. And it's a road, and everyone has called it Boot Hill for years, but the new generation, people my age and even a little bit older, don't know that because the boot hasn't been there for a while. Well, we were digging around in the history of Clarksville and found out that it was called Boot Hill at one point, and I lived at the top of it. And um, as a homage, if you will, to the people who helped me out a ton, Bloodroot Blades, which is B&B, of course, Fantastic. We just kind of figured that Boot Hill Blades had a decent ring to it, and and that that would work fine. So that was my wife came up with it. So that's amazing. What I want to know is how you got it. Now, your the style of your night, your chef knives are are very interesting to me because you've really you have that the one thing that you do that I like that a lot of bladesmiths do is they're you know. You can forge a knife and then you can clean it up, but there's a lot of times it's hard to see that these knives are forged. And one of the things that I, I talk to a lot of people about is if you're going to forge knives, you probably should. It's nice to, for people to know that it was forged. And one thing I like about your knives are you have that forged finish on the top. I mean, how would you describe your chef knives? Uh, that That is something that, a while ago, and I've since kind of grown out of this, but a while ago, I thought that that was something very in-your-face forward so that you would understand that I put the work into that knife. You know, that yeah. um, to leave that forge finish at the top means that, number one, it needs to come off the anvil straight, which is, 
or straight enough. You know what I'm saying? Like that's hard. Right. That is not an easy thing to do. Right. Is to come off that anvil straight or even close to straight. And with my spines being left like that, you you'll have some wiggle on that spine. Like I'm I'm not gonna lie. It's yeah, of course. There's you know there's a little bit of something going on there, and um and so that taper, that distal taper that you're looking at from you know, the back of the knife, the heel of the knife there to the tip, that's all forged in. So it saves me money on the grinder, number one, because the grinder is where, to me, the grinder is where knife makers make their money. Like that's the, that's the hardest thing to do. Number one is to grind and get used to grinding and to do solid grinds. You know, like that's just the hardest thing. So that's where we make our money. Um, and so the closer I can get to the correct shape, thickness, taper, everything on the anvil, the less time I have on the grinder and yeah. Um, and let's face it, let's face it. Forging is fun. Forging, forging is, is so much more fun than grinding. Forging is way more fun except in July, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. right now yeah, yeah. where it's a little bit chilly, forging extremely fun. I'll stay out there all dang day and forge, you know, that's fine. I love it. And, so, so you do a lot of forge finish on the top, which I love. I've always wondered, you know, if you're going to forge knives, what, how, you know, you want it to look like it's forged. And I always thought that maybe, maybe in my mind, uh, integral knives are really the only forge knife that really is a very appropriate because, you know, you wouldn't stock removal integral knife. But when I see knives like yours, um, it makes me very, it, I'm very envious because I really love the finish of your knives um, and they're beautiful. But tell me a little bit something about, you know, I know your handles, you do a lot of uh, reclaimed wood. Can you, you want to kind of talk about the handles for your knives? Yeah, that that is the most fun to me. That's the funnest part about owning Boothill Blades, about um, being a knife maker in general. Uh, and I know it sounds cliche and crafty and, you know, freaking sign making and all that kind of shit. Um, but to be able to take something, and I just did this project for my neighbor. My neighbor has been instrumental in getting us through this first year on our, on our new farm. He's got every tool you can think of and he knows everything and, and he's at my house every day. And so his daughter passed away a couple of about three years ago. She was 18. Um, got in a, terrible car accident and I just over this last year we've become pretty close and so I had his son sneak me out a a t-shirt of his daughter's from her band days and um, at the high school our local high school and so I like taking materials like that and then creating that handle out of it and I've done everything from like wedding dresses and veils to you know room keys to um, stuff like that, where you basically take all this material and you compile it or you, you create my card out of it or whatever, and you create that handle. So every time they see that knife, every time they hold that knife, anything, every time somebody comes over and wants to know about that knife, there's something interesting about that. And as if, as if personal, as if custom chef knives that we, you make too, Jeff and myself, as if that's not enough of a story in itself, then you have this added layer of personal touch to some of them. And I don't get a ton of those, um, right? ton of those, you know, requests or whatever, but they come more and more. That is a blast because when you deliver that, man, the waterworks turn on sometimes and 
and people just love that shit. Let's be Wait, honest. You're telling me your people telling you're telling me that people are crying with your knives. I don't believe that. Two or three times. So my neighbor. Two. Two or three times it's happened. My neighbor, of course, when I gave him that knife, um, that was important to him. And another guy in San Francisco whose father had passed away the year before, and he sent me a box full of his father's belongings and said, tell me what you can do with these things. And I created a handle out of those things. Uh, Jesus. That that sort of turned on turned on the waterworks. If you... you got some sentimental fools as customers. I, I do. You, I, I do. It's amazing. Man. I know. I I'm know. not, I don't believe in, I don't believe in being sentimental. I know. Fine. You know, it's one fine. of my friends told me yesterday that, uh, I have as much sensitivity as the hammer I swing on a daily basis. So that's fine. That, that's, that's fine. Yeah. I just, I, I'm amazed that you're, you know, that's the one thing about custom knife work. And, and what I love about it is I do love talking to my customers and kind of just being able to kind of make something personal for them. And when I haven't had the opportunity once in a while, I get a piece of wood from someone who wants me to use a piece of wood that they will stabilize, but to have that mementos, I mean, you sending me a box of your keepsakes, I, I, I might, you know, laugh a little bit before I actually make you something. I'm I'm just, like, all right, so that knife, that sense. knife that he sent me all those keepsakes of his dad's, there was his dad's dog tags were in there. Um, a couple of, so what did you do? Silver rings. Um, what I did was I took one of those, uh, a silver, a solid silver bracelet. I, I hammered down a silver bracelet into a spacer, um, in between two pieces of wood, both of which he had supplied. And then I, I actually attached one of the dog tags onto the butt of that. I did a hidden tang, uh, like a wash style handle. And I attached the dog tag onto the butt of that, um, that handle as well so you could see a little bit of his name and a little bit of his social on that dog tag um so it wasn't anything like crazy you know it wasn't anything uh, that's, no that's that's yeah i was hoping for something weird that, yeah that, that's actually pretty cool no so most of the knives you do generally speaking are hidden tang kind of gyotos right i i almost exclusively do full tang knives no oh, full tang knives yeah hidden tang i thought you do hidden tang knives no they're to me man they are such uh, i don't know what i'm doing they're such a pain. <laughs> what do you mean? Like what do you the, mean? The, the facets on them and getting those facets to freaking line up and to be even and all the geometry that goes into those handles. I don't know what I'm doing. All I, right. I, well, you know, I understand it. what you're saying. I, I, I you know, you're the, the real facet guy's not on the other line with us, but I hear you. I, I try to just keep it easy, break, break, you know, make a rectangle and, break and then break the corners. That's right, baby. You know? That's right. <laughs> So I didn't realize you do mostly full tang knives. So then I just had a curiosity about it for my, for my, so when you, and when you forge your knives, you normalize them, then drill the holes. Yes. Yes. All, right. all day. You're, I mean, you've done it. I'm sure you're trying to, and I'm using expensive cobalt drill bits. And when you start hearing that screech, cause you can't oh, drill through that handle. Goodness. It's just painful. It's the worst. Actually, yeah, I, I, I hate and, and I'm I'm such a pussy when it comes to I see a lot of guys they they heat up the tang a little bit before they get involved with that. I kind of I don't know. That's I, how you I, that's how you ruin drill bits. That that's then they're not yeah. cheap. No, no, no. Well, that's fascinating and I thought maybe we don't have Morocco, we don't have Craig, but we have you and that's and we have me. So I figured I got a pile of questions for hey man, can I ask you a question? I figured we could I'll ask some questions and you and I will both talk about it and we'll see where we're at and then this is how it is. Sound good? <laughs> yeah, this is how All it right. is. Hey man, 
Can I ask you a question? What grit, this is from T. Kelch, what grit do you go to before etching Damascus? And I'm asking, I'm interested in this because I have, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I'm not doing Damascus anymore. I'm doing one more Damascus knife and I'm holding off. So I'm, I'm interested in what you, what you have to, your opinion. What grit do you go to before etching Damascus? If it is a high count, Damascus is super, uh, um, when you're etching it, it, it allows you to not have to go crazy a lot of times. So if it's a super high count Damascus, 200, uh, let's just say 150 layers and up, you can get away with 600 grit because as soon as you start etching that Damascus, it'll eat into all those layers and you will not see grind lines. It'll be smooth as silk when you come out. The, the only thing you're going to notice is the amount of shine that's on the you know, 15 and 20 or whatever your, whatever your shiny part is in that Damascus, the level of shine goes up the higher in grit you go up, I think. So six, 600, ah, that makes sense. 600. If you're, um, high count, if you're low count though, that's going to show every single hand sanding line and every single grit and scratch and whatever. So if you're going, you know, a hundred and below, you better take that thing up to a thousand, 1500 sometimes 2000 if it's super low grit to make it look good so that makes sense so basically your contrast is going to be the high carbon steel and for the most part a mere finished high nickel steel yeah you got it so that's 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 very interesting to me so yeah that that's actually awesome that's an awesome answer and you hand sand all right you hand sand in between etches too Right, uh, you've done that before, I'm sure. But I've only made two Damascus knives, and I'm off of them. So you etch, and I'll just briefly. I do. Th- Go ahead. I do three etches, 15 minutes each, uh, in my ferric chloride uh, mixture, and it's. I don't know if it's 50-50 ferric and water. I don't know what it is today because it's it's just a monster of its own. But uh, 15 minutes, you pull it out, hand sand that blade again with. 2000 grit something high that's going to make that 15 and 20 really shine etch it again pull it out sand it etch it again pull it out sand it on that last one and i do it three times which will give you you want to be able and mareko actually told me this mareko at blade show two years ago i said how the heck can i make damascus like you make mareko and he said on good damascus you should be able to catch a fingernail on the basically catch a fingernail on the different layers in that damascus and so hand sanding in between those etches is what allows you to get those highs and lows, those peaks and valleys that you can catch a fingernail right. on. Yeah. Very, that's, that's a good one. I, yeah, that's, I've, I've kind of decided, I've made a decision to just back off of Damascus for a while because it, it's just very, I have a very strong, I have problems. I have mental problems. And one of them is, is I want to be a better bladesmith. And I, I started out as a blacksmith and I got into knife making. Uh, I would say most of my knives are, uh, stock removal knives just for the sake of, you know, price and stuff like that. But I get these opportunities, you know, I, people want Damascus, you know how it is. And I made one stick of Damascus with Aaron Wilburn of Wilburn Knives when he was at the Center for Middle Arts. And I caught up, you know, I cut, made two knives with it. One of his, one of those, the first knife is at our shop in the city. And then the second one I sold and I have enough for one more, but I, I have this feeling personally, I feel like I feel like it's for me personally, this is my problem. Will you do whatever you want? Everybody does what they want. I feel like it's cart before the horse. I kind of want to be, I kind of want to be better at being a blacksmith 
and better than being a knife maker before I start adding in the Damascus. I feel like I'm just kind of slowing everything down a little bit. The same thing with hammers. I'm not making hammers anymore. Um, that's just me. No, crazy. So. Hey, man. Can I ask you a question? This is from Sharp Johns. How much steel did you destroy on your way to free grinding greatness? Free grinding greatness? Yeah, yeah I feel free, free grinding greatness. greatness. Uh, he thinks that we're all free grinding. Yeah, I I might be the only dummy doing this, but I use a work rest. I don't use a jig, but I do indeed use my work rest. I do not hold that knife and free grind um, just, you know, willy-nilly letting it all hang out. You're not the only dummy because I use a work rest too. Yeah, for time. For time's sake, because it's very, very difficult to apply pressure in a forward motion and in an upward motion to keep the knife from yanking down. And so you have to take less, you can't hog material that way a lot of times. You know what I mean? You can't push as hard because you're doing that. So if you're not having to fight the downward by keeping it on the work rest, you can just kind of hog and go through. So I, I can grind. The other day, I ground nine knives in one hour, start to finish. Like they were nine, nine, start to finish. Heat after heat treat. I do not, I do not pre grind, so I heat treat at full thickness. And you're forging, you're forging in the bevels. I sort of forge in the bevels. They're okay. they're damn right. near the same thickness as the spine, to be honest. I do forge in okay. the, the the distal taper, you know, from okay. back to front. Okay. But I can take. Which is, you're probably saving yourself on the on warpage if you if you don't you're probably you're probably saving yourself a lot on with that extra material. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and so I go uh, on that work rest, man. I just I'll hog. I did nine of them, start to finish. Took them all the way up through the grits and everything in about one hour doing that. And in the pre in previous times when I've freehanded, shit, it would take me an hour just to freehand one. You know. <clears throat> Wow, that's a, that's a, that's amazing. But yeah, I've right, wasted well. a ton of steel. Let's be honest. Like, how many knives did you just have? You just thrown away when you first started? I, I, you know, I was, it, you know, for me it was really weird because my background was super different. Like, I kind of, I kind of backed into knife making. So I, I like, I've, you know, as a blacksmith, I've, I have, a, I have buckets filled with things that didn't work out right, and but. With the knives, I mean, I, you know, I gave, I gave my first 20 away, you know, and it was like, you know, fine, that's fine. Um, and I use a work rest too. And, and what I do is with, with my stock removal knives is I usually take off the, the beginning stages of it. Um, and I, and I keep the, the edge and I don't, when I, before heat treatment, I don't heat treat, uh, with this, uh, distal taper because, because especially I'm doing stainless steel and when I, between the aluminum plates, I don't want to have any problems when I'm quenching. Um, I'm usually just kind of pre-grinding just enough to, I don't have to deal with it, uh, just enough that I'm not dealing with it when the steel is super hard. So I'm, yeah, well, I don't free grind. I, I do free grind. I do free grind after I've gotten to, uh, 80 grit after a heat treatment. I usually, I usually go on a, I have a work rest and then I clamp it to a, a block and, and my platen's at a specific angle. And then once I get down to where gator belts, I'm kind of freehanding the gator belts, freehanding the scotch bright belts, and then I freehand the disc grinder. Oh, the disc yeah. grinder is pretty easy to disc grinder. Greatest thing of all time. I don't have one. I need to get one. 
That's amazing. Oh, I'm telling you what. I'm telling you what. If you want to get a flat, flat, it really dials in. Uh, it takes up. Here's what it does, because I do a lot of hand sanding. What it, the reason why I like the disc grinder so much is, you know, the, the whole idea behind hand sanding is you're trying to take the, the, the peaks off and then your valleys are your, are your bottom layer. So what happens is, is when you have the disc grinder, your disc grinder is taking away those peaks. So you're hand sanding a lot less and you're taking, you're, you're finding out your high spots and your low spots that you're going to get on your, on your belt grinder. Let's be honest. You don't hand sand. Hashtag send Carl. Well, Carl is, Carl is, he, I, you're trying Carl to make it easy for Carl. I create, I listen, I created Carl. Carl is my personal Frankenstein and I love this kid. And I created a system for hand standing that made him of an assassin. He's a hand standing assassin. Everybody wants him all over the world. I'm thrilled. He kind of wants to back off a little. He's like, all right, you can leave me out of it for a while. I've had enough, and so we're gonna we're gonna leave Carl alone. But Carl's Wait, so Carl, been, uh, what you're saying is Carl went from I love the fame to where you and I are at. Like, just leave me alone in about a week. Carl, 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 Carl's had it. He's like, that's fine. Carl's like, leave me alone. I said, well, it was leave me alone. Leave me alone is one of my favorite expressions, and I would definitely say, you know, after the Alex Steele episode, he was just like, "All right, this was fun," and you know, he's getting he's getting people he's getting people want him all over the world. It's crazy, but you know, so yeah, the answer is yes. Carl's been you know, yes. The answer is yes. All right, hey baby, can I ask you a question? All right, this is from Blades of Black. Caleb, Caleb's amazing. What are the? This is perfect for you. What are the most valuable skills to gain for those pursuing the craft full time? What would you say important skills are for it to transition into being a full time knife maker? That is that is all about business. And side note, I have one of Caleb's early early blades. By the way, he's a good I, I dude. One. He's a good dude. Yeah, he's a good dude. It's awesome. It has a little crack in the uh, Ricasso area, and so he couldn't sell it. And I was like, I'll buy it. And so I bought it. It's at the house now. I love it. Um, anyway, it that has to be all about business. You can be the best freaking knife maker. You can make incredible things, but if you cannot put them out there in a way, if you're doing hand knife and hand picks on Instagram, if you're doing things like that where people aren't going to buy your shit, then oh, finally, then you know, okay, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, then you're not going to have a successful quote unquote business. So I don't think you need to go take business courses necessarily. Like I don't think that's something big. But what you do need to do is read a book. Read some business book that tells you how to structure a company. And it can be any company because every the way you structure a company is very black and white. Like here's sort of how you do it at the ground level. It's very black and white. And you need to understand that the supply and demand portion is the key for you to sell knives. Because if you're pumping out supply and there is no demand, you can't make money. Right. So you have to figure out how to create a demand for your knives, whether that's doing something that no one else is doing or whether that is getting into a niche market or something that that you can quickly become one of the most prominent makers in that little market or whatever. You've got to figure out – it could be price. You could underprice your knives greatly so that lots of people buy them, whatever it is. 
you have to be able to create that demand and and grow that because otherwise you're not going to be able to go full time. You're not going to make enough money, you know? I could not agree with you more. I, I, one of the things that I tell a lot of people is the most, you know, once you become a good knife maker and, and my knives, the more and more I make knives, the more and more simple I try to make them. That's the reason why I'm not doing as much Damascus. I'm trying to be more simple in the creation of my knives. I'm trying to also work on efficiencies. That was one of the reasons why I got the disc grinder. How do I make it efficient for me to make more money? But really for me is I had to really have a, you know, when I started making knives, I did not tell my wife that I was making money. until I didn't tell my wife I was making knives until I had already made 20. <laughs> and then I just showed up with a pile of cash. And I said, I'm in the knife business. And it was because I didn't want to think, I didn't want her to think she was, I was crazy. And then I had to make this, I had to make this decision. I know that I have particular deficiencies in regards to certain things in regards to business. I was a sculptor for a long time. I was a blacksmith for a long time. I was a metal worker for a long time, but I know that I'm not, I don't really have what it takes to be a real business person. And for me to convince my wife that this is a good idea, I had to have a game plan. And part of that game plan was I'm going to take on a business partner, someone to, uh, I accept my weaknesses. That's the one thing you got to do. You have to accept your weaknesses and you have to figure out a way to improve on them. And one of them was, I said to my wife, I'm like, look, I suck at business, but Tony doesn't. And Tony was my old partner that I, um, we worked at a restaurant together. He was the chef, executive chef. I tr- I've known him for a long, long time. We worked together. He was the chef and I was general manager. We had parallel thinking in regards to our goal. And I said, Tony, I offered him a, a partnership. He agreed and it was the best decision I've made. And he's, I've found that, and you're, you're a good business person. You were a business person before you were a knife maker. I was always a sculpture blacksmith. I never had any business acumen. When I told my family that I was going to be an art major, everyone dropped their heads and basically made that face of my kid can't be a business person. He sucks. <laughs> That's what happens when you're an art major. When you're an art major, you are admitting that you don't, you suck at business. So, but I, I understand. It's fine. I suck at business. It's fine. I found someone. You know that. And you're accepted that. Like you. That's. You got to accept your weaknesses and you have to say, yes, I suck at this. Now I'm going to figure out a way to not suck. So finding that business partner has been the best decision I've ever made in regards to this business. So I think that accepting your weaknesses and trying to figure out a way to make them better is super, super important. Here's my weakness. I'll tell you my weakness. My weakness is. Uh, I do not follow up well. I don't do admin work well. I don't do shipping. I don't do all of that stuff that actually makes the business run. I tell people all the time who ask, I literally just make knives at my house. Like That's what I do. I make knives. I'm a big concept guy. I can come up with the ideas to get us in a certain place. My wife runs Boot Hill Blades. She she runs it all. She keeps taxes in order. She keeps emails going. She keeps uh, Google Docs of custom orders of different things. She does the email newsletter that we put out. Like, no joke, she works for Boot Hill Blades probably more than I do, 10, 15 hours a day, whatever she's doing, because she's replying to emails late at night. And a lot of times, that's why people do business with us, because you can email me at 1130 at night and say, hey, was just wondering on a custom order, and you will get an email back in five minutes. Like, 
hey, no problem. We'd love to add you to the list. And my wife runs all of that admin stuff. She has run dentist's offices and financial advisor offices in the past. So she's our forward-facing customer service person. And people love her. The chefs in Nashville that we go visit, they could give a hoot about me. They're like, yeah, I like your knives. You're fine. Uh, Where's your wife? And she will cook them dinner, which I thought was nuts the first time. Like, you're taking a chef dinner. Are you insane? They can cook, woman. What are you doing? They love her. If she doesn't bring dinner now or cookies or something, oatmeal cream pies that she makes, they're pissed. And so I just make knives of Butoh blades. I I don't do anything else. She does. She runs it. That's, I think that that's, I think that the, the ego of figuring out how to, you know, to make things happen is, I, I think that that's, you know, I think that's the most important thing. And, and, um, I know that's really great. And, and uh, we're also, you and I are of a same age. We're a little bit older and we're, you know, we have children and we're just like, you know, if we're going to, you can't play, you have to make it happen. All you're, right. You're Here's smart. a good question. Here's a good question. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. That's the problem. These guys, these guys, they think that just because they make good knives, that means they do everything well. And that's not the case. A lot of times I get calls from people who are just like, I make amazing knives. Or they don't say that, but I know that they make amazing knives. And they're just like, I can't figure this out. And it's always, that's always the case. It's it's this, it's this mindset of... I make great knives, so that must mean I do everything great, and usually you don't. So, sorry about that. All right, next question is from Drek Metalwork. I love this question. Hydraulic press versus power hammer, which to buy first? Oh, shoot. That's a great question. That is a great question. And since I have a power hammer and not a hydraulic press, um, if you want to make money... um, making knives i would say power hammer if you it also saves your arm and many other things if you want to make money by making billets of damascus and selling them or whatever hydraulic press but if you're a knife maker i'd say power hammer first all right i love that answer and here's my opinion because i was at the same stage a few years ago if you're working out of your garage or you're working in a neighborhood don't get a power hammer because number one, you're going to, the problem is, is people decide, they think a lot of guys, I've known guys who say, oh, I'm going to learn how to blacksmith. I'm just going to get a power hammer. Using a power hammer is super hard. If you can't forge or you've never forged before, a power hammer is just a dangerous piece of equipment. You really have to have an idea how metal moves. You have to understand what your capabilities are. You're going to have to also understand just because you get a power hammer, a 25 pound power hammer, like a 25 pound little giant, I think that's what you have, right? A 25 pound little versus like, you know, a 50 pound, a 50 pound air hammer. There's two different machines. So if you just think that I'm just going to get a hammer, and that you're going to be able to make it happen. That's not the case. And they are super loud. And you have to build a, You have to build a structure. You have to build a structure in your floor to handle the pressure of the hitting, right? And the other thing is, is if you've never forged before, a power hammer is just a dangerous piece of equipment. That is the first. I used power hammers exclusively when I was a blacksmith at the Center for Metal Arts. So I even never even touched a hydraulic press. Now here's the great thing about a hydraulic press. Generally speaking, they're quieter. They don't hit as hard. They're they you know they whine depending on the kind of you know power hammer you have. 
you can you can roll them around. You can have them on wheels. So if you had to move them around or something, it can be done. The problem is, is you don't have the, uh, if you're, like you were saying, if you were making knives, you can, you know, you can cut in your bolster if you're making a, if you've, I've made a Damascus knife, uh, I mean, I've made an integral knife at Sunset Forges with his uh, uh, press. I was able to kind of cut in the, the bolster and, and, but you're not really going to be doing a lot of forging of a knife with a, with um, uh, a press. But like you said, if you're trying to make Damascus, a press is great. But if you're trying to make knives, a, a press might not be exactly what you want. My opinion is it's it's the both of them, the both of them are trick. They're both great for different things. Like if you're making hammers, a press is better than a power hammer. Well, that, that's debatable too. But you have to know where you're living. If you have a shop by yourself uh, and you're a blacksmith and you under have used power hammers, power hammers are awesome. If you've never used a power hammer before and you say, I got to get myself a little giant, you better get a good deal and you better practice because you can get in the bat. When you, if you hit with a power hammer with cold steel, that thing, it just rattles around your hands and it's a miserable disaster. I, I I love this question because I had that I had that whole thing and I went with the power hammer because my experience was with power hammers and I got a small tire hammer. Um, I actually use it for making uh, integrals and I like it and I've had to change the dies and make the different parts and stuff like that. But I'm used to a power hammer. But you have to figure out your you know if I had this power hammer in my backyard, uh, the city's coming down here. I had a I had my 25 pound little giant at my old house in the city, my neighbors were what, 10 feet away. And I had it sitting out back, uh, bolted to the concrete out back. And what's funny is my next door neighbor could not hear the power hammer, but the neighbor five houses down, that's up a slight hill could hear it. Like it was in his shop. Cause the sound, I, I went to, I went to the five neighbors on both sides when I bought it. And I said, Hey, I don't know if you guys are at work during the day, but I will only forge with it during the day. And if there's a problem, just let me know and I will try to work around it. Let me know. And what? Eight of the neighbors didn't say a damn thing. And my two next door neighbors who are very cool said, Jared, if I don't hear that power hammer working, that means you're not making money. So you go ahead. You do what you need to do. And if there's a problem, I'll let you know. And I never heard, I, I probably ran that thing for a year back there and I never heard anything, wow. but I did go experience it. It's weird that that sound would roll uphill like that and like, boom, inside this guy's shop, five houses down, but my next door neighbor couldn't hear it. The answer is Drek, get both. Get both. Get, if yes, get both. That's the answer for that. All right. Next question is for, this is an unbelievable guy, Zim Knives. I don't know if you know Nate Zimmerman. Oh. He is a, he's a dyna, he was a forge and fire guy. Awesome guy. He makes beautiful knives. And this is a very, this is a very apropos question to him. So Nate, and he listens, he loves listening to this podcast. He says, I made my first fantasy Lord of the Rings-ish sword a few years ago, and it was literally the fulfillment of a childhood dream. What was it that you wanted to make as a kid, and why the fuck haven't you made it yet? P.S. If it's not a fantasy sword, why is it not a fantasy sword? So, do you have something that from you when your childhood that you've always wanted and that you never made? Yes. Uh, number one, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and you keep your goddamn mouth shut, okay? Yeah, I'm a huge Lord of the Ring fan. I'm out. I'm uh, tapping out. So I love uh, Zim. That's an incredible question. Um, I, when I was younger, I was all about throwing knives. 
I was all about throwing knives. I'd buy them. I'd find them. I, I, you know, my friends had them, everything. I have never made a throwing knife ever. And I know that's goofy and like, they're just, you could come up with one and it would probably take me 10 minutes to build a throwing knife, whatever. But that was my favorite freaking thing growing up, throwing knives and throwing hatchets. And I've never built either. Well, that's nothing's crazy about that. You know, the funny thing is, is when I was a welder, you know, when I started welding and stuff like that, anybody who's a metal worker, they always made these knives and I always looked like me, people are crazy. And and now I'm a knife maker and I'd still think you're all crazy. When I was younger, my dad served in World War II. He's old and he's passed away, but we can still talk about him. It's fine. Um, he was in, in India and he brought back a, what we called a Gurkher knife, which now is called a Kirkery. And when I was a kid, I loved this thing. It was all old leather sheath. And it was big. It was on the on the bookcase, and it was. And I would always pull it out. And he used to say to me, "You're not supposed to pull it out because if you pull it out, that means you got to draw blood. All this bullshit." And I loved these Kirker, this Kirkery, because it just meant. I mean, it looked so crazy. And he would say to me, "He's like, you know, I said, Dad, why is it curved this way? I don't thought I thought swords were supposed to be curved the other way." He's like, "It's for cutting off necks. It's cutting heads off." And it was always this. It always this this uh, this knife that I've always I just would look at and I would. It was always fascinated me. So when I was a kid, I loved this particular uh, Kirkery, which we just called at house the house we called a Gurker knife. Um, the Gurkers were the, you know, soldiers from I don't know, Nepal or something like that. And they were part of the whatever. And they carry these things and they were badasses, I guess. We still, I guess. we still use those guys, by the way, when, when I was in the military, we had those guys climbing mountains in Afghanistan and they're like little, they're like little mountain goats, man. They're up and down before you even set foot on the trail. They're up and down that mountain gone. I don't know if they carry those big knives anymore. I didn't see any, but if I were them, I would screw it. You wait. You where did you where what what branch of the military did you serve? Uh, I was in the Navy. Fantastic. And you met some of these Gurkhas? Yes. Yep. And what were they like? Little Nepali. Uh, they were fascinating creatures. Is the best way I can put it. They are. Whoa. They are not human, man. They can go up, down, kill you fifteen different ways. Just, just fascinating and incredible. They're. They're amazing, and, we, and so these particular and by the way, thank you for your service uh, as a as a professional coward. I I, I applaud your uh, I applaud your I applaud your service, and you you know guys like you are the reason why guys like me can keep our fucking mouths open. So I appreciate that. Um, I think your father so, probably did enough for both of us. That's so. <laughs> fine. He you know it's fine. He did his did what he did. Is I appreciate it. So um, so were these were these Gurkers from Nepal? The, they were from oh they were from Nepal because I know that there's a Gurkha regiment in the UK. Yeah, I. That's a good question. I don't know where. And they never and they never had so you don't so I, I've seen pictures of these Gurkhas doing uh these doing these like uh, moves with their Kirkeries and it's very like like a, doing like uh, some sort of uh, ceremonial movements but. Yeah, those Gurkhas are pretty interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear that. So they're all short little guys whipping around the mountains, huh? Oh, my gosh. No joke. They're like mountain goats. They're just up, down, up, down, no problem. Uh, they're incredible, and, and you're you're just dying. You think you're in peak physical condition coming you know, into that, and they're just no. – they just, well, they are from Nepal. Yeah. Nepal isn't like Nepal isn't like Montana. Right. They sleep on cliffs well, and shit. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. 
Well, my Montana joke wasn't very good. All right, I'm going to ask you. The, <laughs> no, it wasn't good. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to. So I'm going to ask you one more question. Then we're going to hop into just our beefs and wrap this thing up. I really appreciate you kind of coming in at the last minute, and and we have had a lot of technical difficulties, but um, I really appreciate you sticking by. Um, so here's from Bob Rankin. Custom knives wants to know. Hey man, can I ask you a question? What's your favorite step in knife making? Oh. That is something that I was actually just thinking about yesterday as I was hand sanding a knife because hand sanding is not my favorite step in the knife making process. Um, I think my favorite part is probably grinding. I know this is probably goofy. People most likely hate this, but I love grinding profiles. I take that forged knife that looks like, you know, piece of shit basically fell piece of shit steel fell on the ground and you grind that profile in you grind that edge in you grind flat platen wheel and blah 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 and then this thing comes out that it looks what you what hopefully what you had in your mind that's my favorite it's hurts my back hurts my neck it's time consuming but i love that it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding to clean something up and seem like, yeah, it didn't, you didn't, you know, the hammer will actually, a hammer and anvil worked. Yeah. How about you? You know, the, well, the, for, the funny thing is, is like, I've recently been very involved with, um, not very involved, but I've really, really, I've always liked, because my background is a blacksmith, I've really always liked um, the Linray style of blacksmith knives. Now, the, it's called the X-ray knife. And that was... I love making customer knives and stuff like that. I actually love, be honest with you, I like dealing with customers. I like talking to customers. But if I could do one thing, my favorite step would be I love forging the x-ray style blacksmith knife. And because there's just so many steps to make these beautiful transitions to create the between the you know you're forging in where the between the ricasso and the and the heel you're forging in um, this where the connection is you're forging in where the tenon is you're forging that long rain out that turns into the into the uh, into the handle you're doing even like just peening the the uh, the tenon so it becomes a rivet if I could just make blacksmith knives I would just make blacksmith knives because it's just so. It's so, blacksmithing in general is just one of those things that's just good for your mind. It's just this whole idea of of um, one step getting to the next step, and the the step that you do every step counts, and you can't go backwards, and you're constantly trying to get better, and you can see you can see how you're progressing in a manner that is very uplifting. It's very uplifting for your mind. I think forge. I think blacksmithing is one of the best things you can do for your mind. I think that especially if you're critical of what you're doing and trying to get better, and that's the reason why I want to stay away from Damascus. I want to focus on becoming a better bladesmith. I would say my favorite step would be forging. If I could just forge knives and not have to do anything else, that's what I would do. See, I don't think that knife making is quote unquote an art until you get into that shit. Because I don't think any of it's an art. It, but when you when you're forging a blacksmith style knife like Lynn does, where your mind you're using a part of your mind that I do not personally have. I cannot envision things like sculptures and and, and envision how things are going to come together at the end, like Lynn and like you can probably do. That is where 
I personally think art comes into knife making a bit when you build that because well, what I do is not art. Well, what I'm going to totally disagree with you, and this is something we're going to have to do down the line because I can't d- dedicate five minutes to this answer, but none of it's art. I think that there's c- certain things that are artistic, but I've always seen knife making and blacksmithing as a, I don't know about craft, but I think that every step is a stage or it's a system and you're plugging in the system until it's done. Like if you drill a hole, it's not art. You're drilling a hole and that system is drilling the hole all the way through. And I feel like, I feel like the best way to think about some of these, and you know, knives aren't original objects. These are we're doing our interpretation of something that already exists. I think that there are artistic areas, but I think that the forging is a system that is very. I think it's much more specific than people realize. And I think that, you know, as you know, you're a blacksmith, and when you're when you're hitting something, and when you're incising something, and you're creating these profiles, it's not only. You know, nothing's willy nilly. You know, you have, you know, you have distances you need and you have proportions you need and it's all a system to me. So I've always, and I also as an artist, as a, I got a goddamn certificate. I have a BA in arts. I was an art major and I, I hate talking to, to people about art and I haven't hate artists even more. So one day we're going to get into it and today, today, but I don't think it's art at all. How do you like that? I, 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 I think you're wrong, but, um, but I, but I do like what you said. So my question then is what the hell is art then? Oh, I can't do this. I can't do this right now. I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you that my, I'll give you my personal definition of art and then we'll can talk about it another time. My definition of art is somebody having an original idea. And this is very, uh, the older I get, the more crotchety I get. It's an original idea that you envision, that you design and you execute, and that is what art, my opinion of art is. And it's not I'm wrong. I get people's, you have no idea who at mentions me when I'm right or wrong or whatever. I have no, I don't want to debate you. I don't care what you have to say. I know what I talk to artists every day. I talk to shitty artists. I talk to people who think they're artists. I know all about it. So leave me out of it. That's my opinion of art. I want an original idea that you design, that you have a concept for, and you execute it. That's to me art, and I don't, and I believe that art can be. Uh, Jared, I can't do this. I can't do this. Well, I mean, I think that what people think what art is, and what people think what artists are, and they think that these guys are just like smoking cigarettes at a coffee shop with a beret on, and they're slapping shit together, and the money's falling out of the sky. And that ain't the case either. Well, in that case, I'm with this. you. That's my. That's the right answer. All right, now, now that you got me all fired up, we're gonna finish this bitch off with. What's your beef? Do you have any beefs? God, okay. I have two super important beefs. Mareko's not here. I'm taking his beef, okay? Take his beef. Take his beef. Two two super important beefs. Uh, The first one, and thank God Mareko's not here because he'll probably kick my ass for saying this, but knife makers who write on their Instagram or wherever, their website... Books are closed. Do you hate money? Why the fuck would you write books are closed? Why why would you knowingly tell people I'm not accepting your order or your money or your time or, or, or anything? Just schedule them out. Just people enjoy waiting. People like to wait for things that they want. They don't know it, but they love it. 
And why would you put, like, if your wait list is five years long, okay, I get it. Books are closed. Five years out, like, holy shit. But when you're making, like, ten knives or you think that your backlog is so far, why would you write books are closed? And, and, and even, a, even a side note on that, when you post a picture on Instagram of a knife, why would you write not for sale or already sold or not available? Like, you're automatically culling however many comments, however many interactions you would get otherwise where people could ask, hey, is this for sale? Hey, I'd love to get one of these. Hey, I'd love whatever. You're automatically knocking out all those comments that could be there and generating interest in your product where then you could say, no, this one actually was a custom order, but I'd love to get you on the list for next month. You're automatically getting rid of all that. Why would you do those things? I just want you to know that I'm standing up and saluting you. Yes. I'm saluting you. I'm saluting you. It's been something I could never understand. And I don't say anything. I talk to my partner about it, and I say, these guys are saying their books are closed. And I feel like they're saying it because other people say it, and I feel the same way. It's like, what do you do? You th Here's the problem, really, what it comes down to, is people have a very short attention span. They ain't waiting for you. So if you say, I'm out, they're not coming back. Right. You're, you're, I, you're just... that's a good beef, man. I'm, I'm totally with that beef. And I actually keep that beef quiet because I'm like, you keep your books closed. I'm going to keep my shit open. I'll take your, I'll take, you know, I'm, that's a good, that's a fucking bat. That might be, and I have some fun beefs. That might be the best beef I've heard. That might be the best beef of all time. Yeah. It's I'm a true beef. I'm sure we're going to get DMs for that and whatever, but it's yeah, fine. It's, it's fine. Just, here's who you DM. When you have a problem with the beefs we have, I want you to, to contact at mention barter underscore Rick yes. and start and then barter underscore Rick takes all the complaints and then do the header of Hey Num Nuts. So, so if you have any problems with what Jared just said at mention barter underscore Rick, and then the title should be Hey Num Nuts and then tell them how you feel. All right. So what's your next beef? I love little barter, little, little Rick barter too. that little Rick tiny one. <laughs> Rick Barter could be one of the greatest humans on earth. Okay. But I want you send him your hate. Don't send it to me. Send it to him. I love Barter. Love Barter. Okay. What's your second beef? Okay. My second beef. This is the one that's really going to get me uh, in trouble. Oh, my. Good. As if that one wasn't bad enough. This is the one where no, I'm really going to get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. This okay. is good. When knife makers write what the hardness, the Rockwell hardness of their knife is when they don't own a tester. And haven't tested it. Like you build a knife and then you're like 1095, 62 to 63 hardness, blah, blah, blah. Here's the price when you don't have a tester. Why? If people buy American makers like you and I, like Mareka, they buy us because we're transparent. They buy us because they know we're a real person instead of buying something Japanese made by God knows who or 50 people have touched that knife before it gets to you and you don't know the process. You don't know who's doing it. People buy American makers because we're contactable. You can send me an email. I'm a real human. I'm the only one who's touched that damn thing. So I like, why, this. I like this beef too. Why are we lying? Or why are we telling something that we don't know? There's no reason for that. Most chefs, home cooks, blah, 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 don't give a damn about what the hardness of that knife is. And they couldn't tell a difference even if they did know many times, right? So I think you're right. Why lie or why write something that's not true? Just because you followed 
you know, some perfect heat treat guide uh, that you found on Blade Forums does not mean your particular piece of steel, especially if you're coming out of a forge, by the way, instead of a heat treat oven, does not mean that that is going to be 62 to 63 or whatever the fuck you think it is. There's no way to know. You can heat treat two knives the exact same way, and because you heat treated one before the other, your oil's a little bit hotter, and it's going to change the outcome of that second knife. So if you're not testing it, don't freaking write it on your post. That is a very good beef. Sorry, I'm that fired up very on that good, one. No, 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 you're fired up. It's great. I thought I was going to be fired up. No, Jared Thatcher, fired up. I agree with you. I I don't think that it makes... The only difference I see that it makes is with chef's knives, especially. I, I think for chopping knives, I think for competition stuff, I understand that. And I think that, I think that the, the Rockwell is good for, like, the difference between my carbon steel knives and my stainless steel knives is the stainless steel knives are harder, and they're, it makes them a little bit harder to sharpen. But other than that i don't do the i use chisels i don't do the file test i don't do the i don't do the get them tested and i generally speaking i'll give you a i'll give you a rant i'm not gonna you know i don't necessarily think that it makes a difference to be honest with you but i mean for the most part all right that was sorry sorry for the burp (laughs) so that those are two excellent beefs to the point where my beef i thought my beef was going to be great now my beef is going to be pretty lackluster but give it to me well, I, I, you know, this has been a very strange week for me on the internet. I've, uh, and there, I've been, I've been at mentioned by a lot of people. And my beef today is with the listeners of this podcast because what they're doing is, and they're, because I'm going to say a lot of you guys are a little bit gutless. And when I say gutless, I'm saying spineless too. You, I say, here's my opinion about the hand. I've made my, my, Feelings very clear on the handpick. I don't think that it's a good idea. And I think you're doing it because you're trying to show how big your penis is. And I don't think that that's a good idea either. What What's happening is, is with these handpicks is you're just, it's just, you're doing the same thing everybody else does. And it's, you're, 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 you're making, you're making a picture for other knife makers, not for your customers. You're not focusing on your customers. So I've said that before. I'll say it again. I'm standing behind it. So I got a barrage of at mentions with these awful pictures, make, tr- trying to wind me up. Here's faders, fader hands, fader knife pick hands. And they would do their whatever, some, from axes and bottle openers to knives. And oh, fader's going to get mad. Here's why they're gutless. If you really thought I was going to get mad, if you really thought that it was a good idea, you wouldn't put it in your stories. Everybody put it into their stories. And what that tells me is, that tells me is you agree with me. Because if you really, except for Tom McClain, your buddy Tom McClain, he's oh, yeah. fearless with the handpicks. Yep. If you're, if you're at mentioning me in your stories with some bullshit handpick, that means that you want it to go away in 24 hours because you don't have enough faith in your handpick that you're going to put it on your on your Facebook page, on your Instagram page. So, number one, if you're going to at mention me with a dumb picture of your fucking hands with your shitty knife, then you better put it on your face on your Instagram page and not take it away because you know that it's a bad idea. Gutless, number one. Gutless number two is... I got some friends of mine and some listeners who are watching people's hands picks and then they're they're putting my little name, oh, Fader Knives is going to be mad. Like Chad, 
chat at mancrafting. Hey, man, there's no reason to get Jimmy DeResta involved in your little yenting around. You're, you're, you're being a little gutless. You don't need to do that. Just, you know, let's just keep it to the, let's keep it to the knife talk community here. I got it. You're trying to be involved. You're all trying to be involved, but I'm telling you this with peace and love and love in my heart. Uh, this whole Instagram stories, oh, we're going to get fader mad. That's some gutless shit right there. So my beef is how gutless you all are. Put it on your picture page. Don't erase it. And then the other thing is, last, lastly, gutless, not, not gutless, I'm starting to get, people are starting to do impressions of me. People are starting to do these loud, you know, let's face it, lousy impressions of me. Where that I'm Josh, talking through my... That Josh Scott one was great. That was, that was it fine. Was, it, it was, was mediocre. Passable. Okay, it was it mediocre. Was fine. Yeah. It was fine. Yes, mediocre. It was fine. It was fine. He, he, Josh gritted his teeth and talked like I was from some some mental patient Jack Nicholson impression. It's fine. I, I was flattered. But then all of a sudden people started saying, hey, did you see Josh Scott's impression of you? It's pretty good. Well, it's fine. It's fine. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy that you're, you know, we're inspiring some sort of caricature of me and, you know, I'll live with it. So that's the end of that. So my beef is don't be gutless. Put it on your page. Don't let it go away because what you're telling me is you don't have enough faith in your own bullshit to fucking let me have it. And this is all coming from a place of love. And yes, I do have a caricature-ish voice and fine, fine. So that's the end of that. I, and, and and you know what? These beefs are got you. That, your beefs were better than my beefs. My beefs, you know, just, just bitching and moaning. Fine. Your, your beef, I, I should be so lucky. I'm glad people. Thank you. You keep at mentioning me. And well, the other thing is, is don't if you don't know what the hell's going on, don't say what the hell's going on. So I get a lot of mic makers. What's up? What are they putting your name in? The, listen to the podcast. That's I right. Can't keep. <sighs> well, with that said, I'm, to quote Howard Stern, you said it all, Jared. This has been unbelievable. You're you're a star. We've had some problems in the beginning, but we we powered through. Mareka wasn't on here, unfortunately. His Skype crapped out. Craig is Craig is hopefully everything's good with him and his family, and we're gonna resume next week. But I can't thank you enough. Oh, we didn't do uh, fine. I can't thank you enough for uh, jumping in at the end, um, sticking through. I know you're in your car, in your quiet car, which I appreciate. Yeah, and. You, everyone, you must, must, must follow uh, Boot Hill Blades and Boot Hill Kitchen, and you know he's he. This is the guy who is the pinnacle of being a business person, changing this from being an artist and a craftsman, not an artist, sorry, from being a craftsman and a hobbyist to being an actual business person. He is someone that you should. Um, that was a Freudian slip, by the way. You really do think they're artists? I could tell. I don't. I came back, and you know, that's how I. You know, that's another part of my kind. My my the way I, I talk is, I'll say something, realize it's bad, and then I'll chastise myself. So that was within the confines of a good Jeff Vader impression. So with that said, thank you, Jared. You're fantastic, and uh, Boot Hill Blades, Boot Hill Kitchen, and thank you for joining us on on Knife Talk. Thanks for having me on. I miss you, Craig and Mareko. Thanks for letting me come on and hang out. See ya. See you next week.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.